everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. People think the word budget is a noun. You know, like this is the budget right here on the spreadsheet. No, it's an action. It's a verb. Okay. It's a verb. Budgeting is a thing that you do. And of course you need the plan ahead. You know, you need the budget plan. So it's both. It's a noun and a verb. But the more powerful part of budgeting is the doing of the budgeting, the verb part of that word. So that's the part we want students to practice again and again in different ways and different experiences and environments so that they can really build that skill. You know, everyone kind of has a connotation to it. Like, I don't want to deal with my budget. But actually, budgeting is the thing that's going to make your dreams come true. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast today. I'm really uh, excited about this podcast because it's something that I really care about a lot, which is a combination of several topics. One is financial wellness, your personal wellness, and because we know finances and wellness are inextricably linked. It's about how to manage your finances and getting you some tangible tips about how to do that and getting you in the right mind space for that. And it's also uh, where this all comes together with politics and education and financial education. And we have this unique guest today, Yanelli Espinal, who is actually an advocate for all of these things and knowledgeable about all of these things, which is a unique blend of skills. So I am very excited to have Yanelli here today. And I just want to tell you a little bit about her before I introduce her. She's a Brooklyn-born ball of fire, full of energy. She has intimate knowledge of where Financial education meets politics. And this is something that is so important and so near and dear to my heart because I don't think enough people are talking about it, to be honest. She's also known as Miss Be Helpful, which I absolutely love. And she's on Instagram and YouTube and she's a financial educator. She's very passionate about it. And she also has a new book titled Mind Your Money, Insightful Stories and Strategies to Help You Reach Your Money Goals. So this book has become a bestseller. Um, She's on Amazon. She's selling thousands of these books. So there's got to be something good in there. I think she's getting a lot of good reviews. So check that out. We'll talk about that later. It teaches uh, personal finance through stories, which is sometimes the most helpful way because you can learn from other people's mistakes. And hearing their mistakes, you're like, oh, yeah, I did that. And so I think there's a lot that she can offer. More to the point, she's also a director of the director of educational outreach at Next Gen Personal Finance and the Mission 2020, uh, sorry, the Mission 2030 Fund. And she advocates for laws that require personal finance in high school. And she's been very successful with this. And this is something I've talked about before because it's a very big hole in our our global, our financial education for the United States. I think we are letting our younger people down by not educating them and making them learn about this. Because if you don't know about personal finance, you could be the most successful person in the world. But if you blow all your money, it doesn't mean anything. And she's also on CNBC's Financial Wellness Advisory Council, and she hosts Financially Inclined for Marketplace. So she's the real deal, not an imposter. She's got it going on. So Yanelli, thank you for joining us today, because honestly, 
You're a very busy person. So I'm really glad that you could spend a few minutes with us today. I'm not sure how you're fitting all this in. Yes. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for inviting me and having me on. I absolutely love talking about this stuff. I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. And it's something I'm so passionate about. So I, I try to make make it all work, right? And having these conversations is just making sure people are aware of all the work because I could grind away and get it done. But if nobody knows about the work being done, it's a disservice to all that hard work and effort. So that's why I, I would always make time for these conversations. So thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of it all, I really know that people are listening and say, okay, how did Janelli get to be Janelli? How does she, how did she get to be Miss Be Helpful? How is she on, uh, you know, the financial uh, advisory, a wellness advisory council for CNBC? How, how did she get to do all this? And, and what, did, and what did that trajectory and journey look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, it started with horrible finances. I mean, I was making every mistake in the book. When I was in college, I got my first student credit card uh, my freshman year and I maxed it out probably within two to three weeks of getting the card. It was maxed out. And that was just because I needed textbooks. I needed a laptop. I was decorating my dorm room. And then once I noticed how easy it was to just swipe or tap the card. I right. was like, oh, this is, this is, this is easy. I can go ahead and buy clothes and shoes at the mall and get movie tickets and go bowling and buy Chipotle and get Starbucks and just put it all on the credit card. And I'll just worry about paying it back later. I'll pay it back little by little. But I really didn't understand what the terms and conditions were on that credit card. I was paying over 20% interest on those cards and I was just making my minimum payments. So of course that spiraled out of control. And by the time I graduated college, I had $20,000 of credit card debt across four different credit cards. And did you also have student loan debt? I had one small student loan. Thank goodness. I was very lucky because I got a full scholarship to Brown University. Oh, wow. And she's super smart. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a smart cookie. Yes. So I, okay. So my scholarship, I thought that like when I got to college, it was going to cover everything. It was going to cover my tuition, my room and board, my dorm, my fees, my books, everything. But it, it actually only covered your meals, your, your dorm and your tuition. If you wanted to eat off campus, that's on you. If you wanted to decorate your dorm room, that's on you. If there were supplies that you needed for a certain class, that's on you. And I didn't really understand that, like, you know, the scholarship kind of, you know, had specific things that it covers, but there's other aspects of your life in college and your finances that you're going to have to cover. So I really wasn't prepared to, you know, enter college financially. I didn't understand. And so I went into a lot of debt. And after a few years of like learning about money, I started reading books, every book about money I could get my hands on and started to understand like, oh, so this was a mistake that I made, not understanding how to take on that debt responsibly. And so because I did it irresponsibly and I and I had an unhealthy amount of debt, I started by just getting on a debt repayment plan, a really aggressive plan. And I paid off all the debt in 18 months. And that was like living frugally. I mean, I was no more going out to eat, no more getting my nails done, no more shopping, sneakers, clothes, like nothing. I cut, I went cold turkey and cut everything out and I would pack my lunches and take the subway. And I was just like living very frugally so that I could pay down the debt. Um, And so that's when I started realizing, like, I didn't know this stuff. And I'm one of those kids that went off to a really great college. I even went on to get my master's degree. And what did you major in? What was your major? So I studied urban studies, history of art and architecture, and visual arts. I triple concentrated because I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't make up my mind. But I went to an art high school in New York City. And so I always thought like I was going to do something in arts. I thought I would work at a museum as mm-hmm. a museum educator or um, maybe eventually a curator or that I would do programming. And then I interned at a bunch of museums and I did not like it. I was like, oh, this is boring. Like, you know, the museums are very quiet. It's only once in a while they have events. And, and so I was like, okay, I learned that I didn't want to do that. 
And so then I kind of got stuck and I was like, what do I want to do? You know, and so I became a teacher, not, not making a ton of money. But um, that's when I hit that point of realization, like, OK, if I didn't know what to do when I got my first paycheck, then what about all of those other students in the, all the other kids in my community, all my other, my cousins, my siblings, all my friends? Like if I didn't get it and I'm the one that like made it to a really great school and got the scholarship and always did well academically, you know, then they probably didn't didn't get this either. So that's when I decided I was going to start making videos, just short tutorials on YouTube. And I would post like, hey, this is how you can increase your credit score. These are the things that go into your credit score. This is how I paid off all my credit card debt. This is how I'm saving, you know, my first $10,000 in small goals. And I would just post that. And people just started commenting and sharing the videos and being like, oh, my goodness, like if you could do this, you didn't study finance, you never worked in business, you never took a class about money. If you could figure it out, then maybe there's hope for somebody like me. And and that's kind of how I ended up working at NGPF, where we do financial education for high school edu- uh, educators, as well as middle school teachers. And then CNBC reached out and said, hey, you know, we see your content. We see what you're doing in the school system. We'd love to get your advice on financial wellness in our advisory council. So, you know, the opportunities came because I started to put myself out there and tell my story and really position myself as somebody who's not just an educator and a teacher, former teacher, but specifically financial educator. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake up call for women, to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. And I think a lot of people, when they think about personal finance, they, well, first of all, their eyes glaze over. And we also live in, you know, we're avoiding it. Many people are uh, because it's just overwhelming. And we're trying to just deal with our daily lives. And we have enough issues as it is in our daily lives without, you know, folding in the money thing. But I personally believe, and I too, I was a corporate securities lawyer on Wall Street in 1983. You know, I then went on to become an investment banker. I lived abroad. I made some dumb decisions. I had that you know, disastrous divorce that brought me to my knees in my 50s, which made me have to create my entire life all over again. 11 years later, Phoenix from the flames, have my wealth management business. But even with all of that knowledge, right, a person who worked in Wall Street, I took my eye off the financial ball in my marriage. I ended in a very complicated divorce thing that ended badly. I had to literally went from having money to not having money in my 50s. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I had a lot of credit card debt because I had legal fees and kids in school. And I was in denial for a lot of it. And I was also paralyzed by fear. And part of it was, it wasn't in my case, a lack of knowledge. It was just that I didn't have the right mindset about it. You know, I was uncomfortable talking about money or even facing my own money insecurities. And I think like raising consciousness is so important. 
like I saw that you did teach for America and you were teaching, I don't know what level of kids you were teaching, but when, if you were teaching all like kids in junior high school and high school, does anyone ever talk about like money and finances in those environments? Like what is being taught? Like math is one thing, but that's not the same right. as. But it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's different. So Great question. So I actually taught elementary school. I taught third and fourth grade. And at that age, you know, students are kind of learning, just uh, transitioning from like learning how to read to actually reading to learn. So comprehension is much more of the focus and, you know, moving away from some of those early activities around phonics and and phonemic awareness and moving more into vocabulary and understanding higher level things. So I focused a lot on literacy, reading, writing, uh, math, social studies. We did not have a a spot in the curriculum to talk to kids about money. They're just, it just, financial literacy is just not in the majority of elementary schools. And same thing holds true for middle school. High school, interestingly enough, Studies show that it's the perfect time because what when you teach students something that they're about to apply right away in real life, then that's when it it is the most applicable and the studies show it is the most effective at that point. So if you're teaching students about car insurance and they're freshmen in high school, they're not buying a car yet because they're 14. They can't even get their driver's license till they're 16. Right. So you got to wait another two years to teach them about car insurance and how to compare interest rates on loans. If you're teaching them about paying for college and how to get, you know, the the difference between a scholarship and a loan or a grant and a loan, but they're freshmen in high school, they're not thinking about that yet. So you got to wait till they're juniors and seniors to really teach them in a way that studies show that is proven to be effective. So we, you know, talk to students about money primarily in high schools and and in junior and senior years when students are likely to take like an economics class. And most economics classes focus on global economics, trade, you know, different types of, of economic systems, you know, free market economy versus this versus that. But that's not really going to help you with your pocketbook finances. When you get your first paycheck and you cash that and you have money, what to do with that money isn't really covered in economics. So almost every school will teach economics to high school students, but very few actually teach personal finance. And so in 2021, um, at, where I work at NGPF, a lot of the work we have been doing was really focusing on training teachers so that they can feel confident and competent about the topics to then teach their students. Because I'll tell, I mean, when I was a teacher... I didn't even know what was inside of my 403B plan. Right. Like they offered us a, a retirement plan. And I mean, I, I signed up and I didn't know what the heck it was inside of that thing. And if and if I looked at my statement, I wouldn't have been able to read it. I wouldn't have been able to understand what all the lines on there meant. What is an expense ratio? What's an aggressive mutual fund versus a moderately aggressive? I mean, right. I would, I, no, it's, it's terrible how they offer these uh, platforms. And then yes. they don't explain it. So HR says, here's your benefits. I had this conversation with my daughter who's uh, 28 and she's a lawyer, but she's just started at an organization that's not for profit down in New Orleans and she has a 403B. And she and I was like, okay, well, you actually probably want to do a Roth 401k because of your tax bracket. And then I, and she, I said, okay, so what are the list of things that you can invest in? And she was like, well, I'm not sure. And I'm like, okay, you got to scroll through this thing. We got to look <laughs> Log at, in. you know, whether, yes. what kind of options you have, but no one, like they just said, here's this. And, and no one really explains it. Oh no, it's due Friday at 3 PM. Fill it out and give it back. Right. And then I'm like, wait, what? I mean, what? I don't even know. And so my family, I'm from an immigrant family. My parents are immigrants. They don't really speak English. They never had the type of jobs, you know, that I've had the luxury of having, you know, five, six figure jobs. They they never had that. So 
they never had a 401k or a 403b or anything like that or any type of benefits for retirement. So I didn't have anyone that I could go ask, hey, what, yeah. you know, how, what does this mean and how did you do this? So a lot of times you're just figuring this out or you ignore the thing altogether. And so we focused on trying to empower teachers first, but then we realized that, yes, teachers, is it's a great start. We get, If we can train a core of teachers that are ready and, and willing to teach it, then we're prepared to get this to students. But ultimately, if they are not required to teach it in the school, then it's just going to be a teacher saying, hey, I really want want to teach financial literacy. I'm passionate about it. I know my stuff. I'll start an elective and I'll get it done. And then the principal or the administrator is saying, well, you know, we don't really have space for it in the program. It's going to create scheduling issues. It does, it's not a requirement. So why, why would we do it? We don't, we don't want to do that. So if it doesn't exist, it's really hard to be that one voice in the school that yeah. is going to add it to the course catalog. So we realized very quickly that while we were working from the grassroots point of view with teachers and students, we also at the same time have to be coming from top down approach where the districts and the states are saying, hey, we have to include financial literacy. That way we can make teachers lives easier because they want to teach it. But if they're not being told that the class exists, then let's get the class to exist. So in 2021, the organization was created called uh, the NGPF Mission 2030 Fund. That's also a nonprofit. And what they do, what we do there, I'm an advocate at that organization where a couple of days a week, I will schedule calls to meet with state leaders, representatives and senators from states that are interested or curious to learn more about financial literacy and how it looks in their state. And we give them information. We give them all the data. Hey, listen, only 23% of students are getting this. And even the ones that are getting it, it's because they opted into an elective. It's not a required class. So what can we do to make this a requirement? Requirement. Usually it comes through legislation. So we have to find a bill sponsor who's who a you know passionate yeah. lawmaker who will introduce a bill that says, hey, this has to be required. Then that bill moves through the House, then to the Senate, then back to the House. Then once everybody on education committees votes yes for that bill, if it finally makes it to a yes vote from everybody, then it goes to the governor's desk. And when the governor signs it, it becomes law. So in 2018, there were five states that required right. That's a the full last semester standalone. I heard there were five states. That was, 20, that was 2018 when I started this work. And now in 2023, there are 23 states. Awesome. So we've more than quadrupled in just a handful of years because of these efforts with lawmakers and state leaders. So let me ask you a question. The NGPF organization, that's a 501c3? That's right. Okay. And can people, like, do you take donations or how do people, what, what, how are you funded? It is, we're such a lucky organization. The co-founders, one of the co-founders, his name is Tim Ranzetta. He um, started off at, at business school at Stanford and was kind of making connections and knew he wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Never imagined he would, you know, have the wild success that he had. And so he's, he thought, you know, what do I want to do with my success? So he created an endowment fund okay. that funds the organization indefinitely. So everything that NGPF.org offers is completely free and always will be free curriculum, free lesson plans, free arcade games, free homework assignments, free tests and quizzes, free everything videos. And then the teacher training that we do is also free for teachers to sign up and participate. And that's all because it's endowment funded. So can individual young people or any people go on yeah. there and have an interactive experience through learning things? Yeah, anybody can go on to NGPF.org from a computer or phone and pull up a lesson, pull up a game and activity. The only thing that you cannot access because it's locked for teachers only 
is the answer keys to all of those activities and and quizzes and and tests. Like we're not going to put the answers on the website, obviously, because students would just go running right. on to pull them <laughs> off. So we have you have to create a free teacher account, a username and password with a verified school district teacher email, so we can confirm that you're you are indeed a teacher. Then we have a team that will verify that you are a teacher, give you access to that, and then when you sign in, you can unlock the answer keys. But if you're just a regular person who's not in a classroom and you want to take a look, like you're a parent, you're a mom, you're an auntie, and you have kids that you want to start talking about money with, we have some amazing resources, and you can just print them at home or pull them up on the iPad and do them. Like there's one that I love. It's called the bean game. So there's a template you print it out at home and then you get some dry beans and you put 20 beans out on the table and you go, okay, here's your budget. This is your bean budget. Now, if you want to, for housing, you have to start with housing. If you want to live uh, by yourself in a bachelorette pad, it's going to cost you three beans. But if you can't, you know, you don't want to spend that much, but you can have a roommate and split an affordable apartment, put two beans. But if you don't want to spend that much, well, then you can stay at home and you just contribute to the bills. Okay, just put one bean. And so now they decide, okay, what, how do they, what are their values? Well, how do they want to live? And then they keep putting beans down. And by the end, if they have any left or if not, then they're like, oh, but I don't have any beans left for fun. Okay, well, what do you got to do? You got to cut beans from somewhere in yeah, your budget. Yeah, yeah. And it's just <laughs> such a great way. Like you can print it out. It's so tangible. You know, it's tactile. Like you, it's like that old envelope, which I still like because I'm old and that (laughs) old envelope budgeting thing. And there's actually an app for this too, where you can put things in envelopes for certain expenses. But for me, I love that because it's kind of like I'm ring fencing this money. I mean, I do this for my taxes. I do this for everything because I know my money personality and I'm mm-hmm. a saver splurger. And boy, when that splurger, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing comes out, it can be gnarly. <laughs> so I need to have my envelopes in order. But that's so cool because a kid could see like, oh, wow. If I, you know, everything's fungible, right? You can move it all around. That's right. And that's the key lesson is that there's just trade-offs. Listen, you want to spend this dollar over here on this thing, then there's something else over there on that thing that you're giving up in order to do this. So you just have to decide where are your values and align your spending with your values. I mean, you can't have everything and anything that you want, but you can certainly budget and save for the things that matter the most to you. So let's explore what matters most to you. And you can do that in the third grade, in the kindergarten, in to eighth grade in high school, at any age level, it's appropriate to start thinking about what do I care more about? Do I care more about buying candy and snacks or do I care more about having fast internet on my iPad at home? What matters more to me? And when they start to think that way, they can realize money and spending is just values-based. Yeah, I mean, money is all about values. I talk about relationships and money a lot. And when you commingle your money with people, which you should do very intentionally and not commingle all of it, all at once. Very carefully. Yes. I a hundred percent agree. hundred percent. But you know, you need to know your money personality. You need to know your, you know, your partner's money personality. You need to have open and transparent discussions about that. But we don't really talk to our kids about money at all. Cause we're, I think a lot, a lot of people, uh, especially I think in my generation, the baby boomer mm-hmm. generation, like we wanted to make sure that our kids didn't have I don't know. We didn't have bad lives, but I don't know. We wanted everything to be perfect and give them the best. And, you know, and I don't think that really did anybody any favors. So I want to ask you a question though. So when 
a state says, okay, this becomes now a requirement in high school. Is it all high yep. schools, just public high schools or private and mm-hmm. public high schools? Local governments uh, decide about uh, education policy, but they can only decide over public schools. Private schools don't, you know, receive tax funding, so they can't, the government can't intervene into what's being taught at a private school. So whenever legislation is officially passed, that's just talking about public schools, which includes charter schools, okay. but not private schools like, you know, religious schools or other private schools. And the beautiful thing about the way this legislation works is actually very localized. So while some people will say, oh, but that's, you know, top down mandates and forcing everybody to do the same thing. It's actually there's a lot of local control in this legislation. In all the states it's been passed, there's been very specific language about who decides what is going to be taught in that class. So because if you live in Florida, it's very different from if you live in Oklahoma or if you live in New York City, we shouldn't all be learning the same things, right? Some are going to have to be learning agricultural lessons and and some are not, and that's not going to really affect them, right? So local districts will decide the specific list of topics that need to be taught. Most of them will include the basic core, banking, budgeting, investing, credit. But then there's other ones that they add in that some might not. So actually a fun fact, the state of Georgia, it was the first state ever and the only so far to date as of late 2023, that includes cryptocurrency oh. as a required topic that needs to be taught in the financial literacy class in high school. That's the state of Georgia. I think that's a good one because, you know, look what happened during COVID. And I wrote a, I wrote a lot about crypto and all this, you know, what I think about it, which I'm not, I'm not a particular fan. But there was also, you know, I think a lot of people got kind of sucked into that. And also the meme stocks on Robinhood, you know, they, yes. everybody's trying to look to get rich quick, but they're not investing based on fundamentals. I'm a wealth manager. I spend a lot of time creating portfolios with my group. We are bottom-up investors. We like to invest on fundamentals. I'm not saying there's not a space for crypto, but you have to have a very healthy distrust for it and realize that it's kind of a multi-level marketing scheme in some ways. So Yeah, it's so brand new. I mean, you, we just don't know much about it. And it, and it's it's so fresh and new that pretty much it could go in any direction. There's not really any government um, regulation on it. There's no, I mean, there's no notice about, you know, what's allowed and what's not. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. And when whenever you think about stuff like that and where that fits into your financial life, it should be a small percentage of money that you're willing to be risky with. But unfortunately, I've met teenagers, I have met teenagers in, in high school and colleges that told me like, oh, I took my entire savings and put it into crypto. Yeah. Well, because they watched the the Super Bowl a few years ago. And right, all these cele- the Super Bowl was all oh, these celebrities all who don't know anything about anything are telling you to put money in crypto. Now they've pulled back because of this, you know, the Sam Bank yeah. Friedman. They've Bank been Friedman. real quiet lately. Yeah, they've I mean, you know, it was a disaster. <laughs> and and again, it's like yeah. the people who got into it earlier making a lot of money on it. It has a right. very multi-level marketing scheme feel to it. There's a lot of corruption that can occur in there because it's a lot, it's a platform for moving money without anybody tracing it. So, But I think that's a really savvy thing because when young kids with Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all the social media, 
there is this FOMO, there's this idea of getting rich quick. We have a lot of influencers who are out there saying, I'm a 26-year-old and I'm a multimillionaire. Multimillionaire from crypto. You know, and yep. what do they do? Yep. Or they have a TikTok video that goes viral, then they create a platform and sell product through the platform. That's how they became a millionaire. Exactly. You can't have all your retirement money by the time you're you know, 28 for the rest of your life. I can tell you this because I run financial plans and money management. No, but they make it sound good and look good on social and they tempt everybody with their aspirational content. Exactly. What you're doing is you're actually teaching people what they should be looking yes. for. Yes. So the big thing for me is, and because I actually teach the cryptocurrency basics course to the teachers, and that's a 10 hour course that I designed and teach. And what I do there is I don't focus on them trying to learn to buy crypto. What I focus on is understanding what it is and historically money from a historical perspective. So we actually go way back to like BCE when Aristotle defined what is a good form of money and what is not. So we actually look at the six principles of of sound money from Aristotle's writings and we look at them. What are they? Portable. Can you, if you need to go from America to Europe, can you bring the money with you? If not, that's not a good form of money. And in the past, people were used cattle as money. Shells, cowrie shells were money. Leather, wampum, tulips were money. Like, so what I try to do is get them to understand historically, you know, what is money and how money has transformed throughout different civilizations and how today cryptocurrency enthusiasts are just introducing a new form of money saying, hey, instead of having these physical things that will act as the money, let's get rid of anything physical and let's just use code that's been typed into computers as the money. And if we can do that, then it would be the ultimate form of sound money because it's scarce if you limit the amount that exists. It's portable, it's durable. It's all those things that Aristotle calls sound money. And so we try to teach them those principles and the concepts so they can then explain to their students what is cryptocurrency, why are people so enthusiastic about it, and then what are the critiques? So we try to do it in an unbiased way. We're not pro or against. Instead, we're just learning. And then the students themselves can make their judgment about whether they like it or not based on the information that we're teaching them. And I think part of the, you know, for me as a wealth manager, I'm suspicious of it. I see its place. I understand the blockchain. But I do think that there has to be a high level of caution. But I also feel that about paying on your phone and paying with credit cards, just kind of what you were talking about before. We have become a society where there's no physicality in paying. So then all of a sudden you buy something and you forget about it. And then all of a sudden you've got $20,000 in debt, or in my case, uh, way more debt when I had it, when I was going through my divorce. And then you're like, oh, Uh uh-oh, I have to pay this debt down. And so it's easy not to be aware of it or we can be sitting, looking on our laptop while we're watching TV and we're getting ads popping up and maybe we click on one in Instagram and we buy a pair of shoes and we can't even remember that we did it because we were busy watching TV (laughs) and shopping all at the same time and we didn't have to get a credit card out. We just like hit whatever, some sort of electronic payment. Yeah, one click buy. That's right. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's impossible not to spend money. But I want to ask you, going back again to NGPF, because I think this is such an important organization. If people went on there, could they find out what states don't have any literacy as a requirement? What states are thinking about it? Who they can contact in their local area to push them to say yes to it? 100%. Yes. So if you go to the NGPF.org website, there is a button that says join our mission all the way to the top right corner. 
And if you go in there, there's a a Got Finance map. So you can click on Got Finance under the quick links and you'll see the map pop up right away. If the state is blue, then it does not yet have a semester standalone course requirement for personal finance. And if the state is any shade of orange, light orange, dark orange, that means it has the, the legislation already and it's either fully implemented. So Every student in that state right now is getting the full semester class by the time they graduate or they're in the process of implementing legislation that was recently signed. So they have the bill. It's it's in effect, but it's in the process of implementing. So quick example, you know, Connecticut, they just signed the bill, but it's for the graduating class of 2000, like. 2027 or something like that. So it's not yet that the students who are graduating next year will get it, but it's It's starting with that one. Exactly. So any orange on that map is a good sign. Any blue on the map is a sign that they don't yet have guaranteed access to a full semester class. Because just like you got to take algebra, you got to take English language arts, you got to take biology. We, you know, we prescribe these required classes that we believe everyone needs Financial literacy should be on that list. And that's what these states have already decided that they need to do. They need to add financial literacy to that list. And if something's got to go, they'll figure it out. And if if an, a half credit needs to be added, they figure it out. But they make it work so that every kid gets this class because we all know how important it is. Well, it's the linchpin of our life, like I said. I mean, if you don't understand the basics, like how much money you have coming in and how much money you go going out. And I mean, that's like the basics. If you don't understand basics. that, you can't, you can't function correctly. Because if at the end of the month you have more money going out than coming in, then, uh, okay, I'm not like the most brilliant person in the world, but I'm assuming you're probably using a credit card to fund that delta, which means now you're in the downward spiral. So what pushback are you getting from states that don't want to do it? Like, why would they not want to do it? Yeah, I mean, it's not that they don't want to. I have never had a conversation with a lawmaker that said, we don't want to do this. Instead, they say, we want to do this, but there are some challenges. First challenge that they say is, the teachers themselves don't know this. So we have to create a plan. Because if a teacher has a... Yeah. And, and listen, I totally understand. Yeah, me too. Um, it, they're, they're right. The teachers have, you know, never taken a financial literacy class themselves. How are you going to teach kids about investing in the stock market if you yourself don't know the first thing about investing in the stock market? So the the reason why there are challenges is because there are a few phases. First, th- first things first, we have to figure out how are we going to educate all the teachers and get them up to speed so that they can, you know, teach this course with confidence. Is there a licensure, a certification mm. that needs to be created by the Department of Education or by local school districts that will allow a teacher to say, okay, I'm going to take that cert- certification or add that licensure to, you know, under my belt. And then I can then teach this class because I've learned, I've demonstrated that I, you know, have the, the knowledge. So that's the first thing is that they say teachers don't aren't prepared yet to teach it. So we need, we need to address that. Um, and then the second thing is graduation requirements are pretty packed in tight. You know, students have so many courses they need to take for math, for social studies, for science, for electives, for all these foreign language, all these different classes. So oftentimes they'll say there is literally no room to create a new spot for financial literacy, something is going to have to go. And that can create issues because the folks who support that other class that we're, that we are suggesting that we remove are, you know, they're up in flames like, no, no, we, you know, this is important. Everything is important, of course, but figuring out what the priorities are and which classes can be electives and optional, that's where we're kind of reimagining that conversation and saying, maybe there's something that right now is required that should be optional so we can require financial literacy instead. And that looks different every single state. Um, And then the last thing that I'll say that they mentioned as a challenge is that when you look at the graduation rates, 
if you choose to add a new credit, so say the state has 22 credits required for graduation. If you increase it to 22 and a half or 23 in order to add a financial literacy class, what usually happens as a result is the graduation rates drop because you're making it harder to graduate from high school. And no state leader wants to make it harder for their youth to get a high school diploma. So that's a challenge. And so what we've done, thankfully, we've succeeded in every state so far, is we've created a situation where we can include a half of a year, which is 18 weeks, that's a semester course, Mm -hmm. and not increased the requirements at all. So it's a net zero change. So for example, in Florida, I was very involved in the legislation in Florida. And what happened there was that we looked at national data for elective credits. Most states have like six elective credits that you need to graduate. But Florida had eight. So there were way more electives that you could take in Florida versus other states. And so we said, why don't we take a half of a year of electives out of the required electives and replace it with a personal finance semester class. So now you only need seven and a half elective credits and a half credit in financial literacy. And everyone agreed that that made a lot of sense, especially given the data about Florida being on the higher end of electives. So that's the kind of work I do. I have to like go sniff around, find data that could make the argument work and that could convince folks like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's a solution right there. Um, And that worked in Florida, but it's obviously not going to work in other states. Um, There's other states that will say it can either count for a math credit or it can count for a social studies credit or it can count for an elective. So giving flexibility allows, you know, everybody to be able to do it without increasing graduation credits. So I do want to ask about California because I'm in California and it's a huge state, right? <laughs> it's like a, the size of a country. So I'm wondering where where do we stand on this particular topic? There is actually a brand new website, Financial Ed, the number four, Financial Ed 4 CA. Financialed4ca.com is the website you can go to learn all about a brand new ballot initiative in the state of California. In the 2024 election, you all, if you are a voter in the state of California, you will be able to vote for, if you choose to support this, you will be able to vote on the ballot for a required semester course of financial literacy. And if you don't want to support it, you can vote against. But I mean, I want to obviously encourage everyone to support this cause. And that's going to be on a ballot because instead of going through legislation, we we took a different route, which is to create a ballot initiative and let Californians themselves choose this. So keep an eye on that. Yeah, California loves a good old referendum. And I will say this, if anybody (laughs) out there doesn't vote for this, I will be very <laughs> mad at you. So personally, I will be very upset with you. Yeah. You're gonna have a bone to pick. <laughs> yeah, I am not. I'm not gonna be happy with you because let, let me just say this, and then I do want to ask you a question about uh, the yes. skill set, but uh, about these courses. But if our youth is financially aware, they are going to be better economic players, and they are going to make for a better economy which will flourish more and we will all be more productive. So right now, I can't for a billion, I I mean, I could look at many reasons and I can't see one negative reason why anyone would vote no on this. And if you do vote no on this, then I'm just going to say straight up, you're a ninny and there's absolutely no reason (laughs) to vote no on this. So just don't. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree. There's no reason to vote against it. It's only good for students. And what I tell you is I I hear adults all the time that I run into that will tell me, 
I wish that I learned about taxes in school. I wish I learned about investing. I wish I learned the difference between a savings account and a checking account and a debit card versus a credit card. I wish I was taught these things. So the goal with this is to eradicate that. We don't we don't want to hear anybody saying that anymore. We want to see a future where everyone's going to say, oh, I'm so glad I got that. That was the best class I got. I still use it to this day. You know, the information that I learned, I use it to this day when I when I compare loans, when I'm yeah. you know, paying my bills, when when I'm looking buying at my bank house, accounts, buying a car, when I'm buying a house, when I'm <sighs> buying a car, when all the things when I'm investing for my child to go to college, I, I'm, I know how to open a 529 yeah. plan. I know the difference between a 529 and a health savings account and a fire and a Roth IRA because I learned these things early. So for me, it's, it's a matter of let's change this from one generation to the next. Let's shift to everyone being able to say, I'm so glad I got that was the most important class that I got. And I think too, once young people get introduced to this and they feel they have control over it and they get excited yes. about it, they'll yes. want to learn more. So it will inspire them to to go out and be proactive and go online. These kids know everything about going online to find every answer oh, known to yeah. man. There's also loads of educational things on uh, social media. So when these guys come out of the program, to say the semester program, and I know it differs state by state, but what are the basic things that they're going to come out knowing about so that they are equipped to at least have a budget? Like what, what are the, the like four skills that they're going to have from this semester course? So the semester course actually includes um, a few different units. So banking, it starts with the psychology of money, first of all, because the reality is we, you know, there's a lot going on in our minds and social media ads are only tricking us into spending money more and more every day. So we first start with really your, your mindset and really understanding, okay, you know, how do you understand your values around money? And what are some of the lessons that you need to kind of think about when it comes to using the internet, using your devices um, and spending money online? So we, we call that your values and money and then your brain and money. So that's kind of the psychology of money and, and behavioral economics. Then we teach students about cognitive biases so that they're aware like, oh, this is the, that thing happening in my mind. You know, this isn't me, you know, planning ahead. This is me splurging all of a sudden or, you know, just revenge spending. Or we, we teach them these concepts so that they can recognize it when it comes up for them. And then the second thing is banking and investing. They first just understand like where to put your money and understanding the difference between how much it grows in a savings account. If that's not enough growth for your goals in the long term, then investing and understanding the growth rate that they may get through investments. So banking and investments, credit is the third one, which is huge. They learn two different units in credit. First is types of credit that exist. What are all the different types of borrowing that you can do? And then managing credit. So once you take on the loan, it is your responsibility to repay that on time and in full. So how do you manage repaying um, your debt? Um, and then a couple last units, which we leave kind of for the end of the year, because most of the students are starting to think about these things, um, paying for college. So understanding if you want to go to college, what does that look like? And if you don't, then there's a, a unit that pairs with that called alternatives to four-year college. That's mm-hmm. for the students looking for an alternative path. And I love that because when I was in school, everybody was, all my educators and teachers were like, college, 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 college. You do not have a choice. You have to go to college. And some schools have that college-bound culture. And there's one or two kids that kind of maybe yeah, know that college, go to college. for them. Yeah. yeah. And if you know it's not for you, like my little brother, he just joined the army. He's doing his service in Louisiana right now. And he 
loves it. I mean, he thrives every day waking up, having something physical that he needs to get done. And he he loves it. And he knew early on college wasn't for him. Imagine all of his teachers telling him he had no choice but to aspire to go to college instead of teaching him about joining the military. There's all of these different um, topics in that alternatives to four-year college, how to take a gap year that's productive, how to apply and join the military, the different types of service that you can do, um, starting your own business and pursuing entrepreneurship. There's so many different things that you can do. Trade school, how to get up started in a trade. These are all viable options that are great pathways to success and wealth for a lot of people, but we're just not including them in the curriculum. We're telling kids they just have to go to college. So I really love the alternative to four-year college because it gives, it really creates that choice and respects and honors that. Yeah. I think the idea of people, you know, not following the college path is a very important thing for people to like start talking about again. So when I was in high school in the 70s, people often went to technical schools and they learned how to be a welder or how to do something other than go to college. Mm -hmm. But then somehow I think in the 70s, when people started, you know, having more money, families were like, oh, you know, I want everyone to go to college. Like I was the first person in my family to go to college, certainly the first person to go to law school. And, you know, it was just that aspirational thing. And then we all got caught up that everybody had to go to college. Yes. And it's not for everyone, you know? And I think that we're now coming full circle back to the fact that, you know, we do have a need for some of these other skills that are very important to our economy and certain people's personalities. So I think that that's a really important thing that we should be raising consciousness in our schools about. So when they do come out of this course, so will they know how to budget? Like, will they have just some basic budgeting things because knowledge, because I worry that a lot of kids have parents who are really not good at handling their money. So they don't have a role model. And so if they don't learn these basic skills, just such as simple budgets, so will they also have those skills in addition to the other things? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Budgeting is so important. So um, one of the things that we thought really strategically, and I can't say we, I have to say the curriculum team at NGPF, because I'm not, I'm not, I can't take credit for their work, but there's a group of folks that works on creating the curriculum. And one of the things that they had to think carefully about was the order of the units. So what do you learn first when you come into the class? And what's the last thing you learn in the semester? Because the last thing you learn is the most likely to, to be the stickiest when you leave school. So budgeting is actually the last unit of the semester course, because the goal is that they can then say, oh, what did I learn in my financial literacy class? If they, if they can't remember the very first unit or two, where we talked about the psychology of money and banking and things, that's going to come, right? But the budgeting, they can put to use right away and they won't forget. It's the last thing. It's the most likely to stick. And they try a few different budgeting methods and they have all these games and activities that they do. So they learn about zero-based budget, the cash budget envelope method. They learn about all these different methods for budgeting. And then they have to decide which one makes sense for them and actually practice it. There's simulation games where they practice the budget. And then there's also challenges and projects for them to do it in real life. And um, they have to budget for certain themed activities too. So for Thanksgiving, which is coming up, we're in November right now as we record this, for Thanksgiving, there's a budgeting activity where they have to budget for a Thanksgiving, a Friendsgiving event. So they have... They know how many people are coming. They have to go. If their local vendor is Walmart, they got to use the Walmart prices from their local Walmart, right? They have to specifically do the research to find out what's in their budget. How much are they going to spend on the decorations, on all of the ingredients for the food, the invitations, 
every single thing they have to include in this project so that they can practice budgeting in lots of different ways and understand the value of that practice. Because people, you know, one of the things I noticed, people think the word budget is a noun. You know, like this is the budget right here on the spreadsheet. No, it's an action. It's a verb. Okay. It's a verb. Budgeting is a thing that you do. And of course you need the plan ahead. You know, you need the budget plan. So it's both. It's a noun and a verb. But the more powerful part of budgeting is the doing of the budgeting, the verb part of that word. So that's the part we want students to practice again and again in different ways and different experiences and environments so that they can really build that skill. Yeah, and I hope that people, the the kids are learning and anyone listening to this realizes that budgeting, you know, everyone kind of has a connotation to it. Like, I don't want to deal with my budget. But actually, budgeting is the thing that's going to make your dreams come true. Okay. So flip it on its head and say, you know what? I can't wait to budget because it's going to make that thing that I really want to happen, happen. And I'm going to do it without a debt hangover from it. Honestly, I love this idea of a budgeting kind of game activity. I should have done that with my daughter's wedding budget last year. Yes. Who got married in New York City. And I got to say, that was one expensive wedding that I am still marshalling my resources from from last year. I'm still trying to get my act together now just to recuperate from it. But, you know, weddings are one of those things where it's like a runaway train. I mean, you know, you start off with this little kernel of an idea and then before you know it, the day is here and you've spent like a billion dollars more than you thought. And you're just like, Oh, what, what happened to the budget? What happened to the wedding I, I'm budget? I'm just like, nobody better get divorced for like 40 years because I want to amortize my investment on this thing. But yeah, I mean, I think, so all of this stuff that you're doing is so incredibly important to our society and to our young people. And because I do have this focus on girls and women, I do want to ask you a question because I do think that like uh, Sheryl Sandberg is uh, has Lean In and she's starting this new program for 13-year-old girls where they're trying to elevate them to know that it's okay when you're 13 or 14 to still participate in class. It doesn't make you less cool or less of a cool girl. Yes. But what advice do you have for parents or just for younger girls, you know, about how they should embrace this 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 education about money? And mm. and and because again, we still have gender you know, equity issues with our pay. Yes. Um, not, you know, it's 82 cents on the dollar. Like I, uh, you know, I've said many times for Latinas and women of color, it's way, way less, less than 82 cents on a dollar. That's right. So we have communities where some of these young women are just not being taught by anyone about any of this stuff. What words of advice do you have for these people and what we can do to elevate and get some awareness going? I would say that I'm, I agree with anybody out there who thinks that it's scary to face finances and to start talking about it and learning about it. I agree. It is scary at first, but so is anything that's new to you. Now, I am learning to get my learning to drive now so I can get my driver's license. I'm in my early 30s because I'm such a New Yorker. I never learned to drive. I was you know, a like my daughter. Girl. She's 33. She doesn't know how to drive. She lives Story in, in New York. Story of my life. So I've been a New Yorker my whole life. Now, recently I moved to Miami. And I, you kind of need a car down here. I mean, I have Uber and stuff, which makes it easy. But the point is, I need to start learning to drive, right? It's scary as heck. I get in the car and I'm like, what are all these road signs? I got to learn what they mean. <laughs> I don't know what that one. And that looks like a slippery, but it means this. I don't know these signs. I don't know the different things. Am I going to let that fear of these signs being unfamiliar to me and, and these terms being something I don't know 
that is that going to stop me from learning how to drive so that I can take control of my life and be independent and I can go anywhere, anytime and not rely on an Uber to pick me up or somebody to send, send help to pick me up? I need to get that independence. And regardless of how scary it is at first, it's just a little hump. You got to get over that, right? I'm not going to let that block me and be a roadblock, right? Same with money. Those road signs that look unfamiliar to me right now, that's how it's going to feel. There's a lot of vocabulary, a lot of jargon, a lot of terms in the financial space that you're going to be like, what does that mean? Wait, what? This term, that term. But that's the little hump. Get over the hump. Learn them. Learn them just like you know the road signs. Just learn the words of money in the financial space, the terminology being used, the different account names and the different types of you know vocab. Once you know that, you're going to have the independence with your money the same way you you feel independent hopping in a car, driving anywhere, anytime. And that feel good, you know, feeling in a car, driving yourself, not relying on anybody else to take you anywhere and being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, go when you want. That's how it's going to feel. But with your money that you're going to be in control and you can do what you want, spend how you want. You're going to be in control. It feels amazing. There's nothing like it. I can guarantee you. And at the end of the day, what it also does is it allows you to never have anyone talk to you like you're dumb. When you sit down with an advisor or you sit down with a coach or a financial planner and they start talking or your partner or your partner's parents or your coworkers, and they start throwing fancy financial terms at you because they want you to think that they're so much smarter than you when it comes to money or they're trying to sell you something or they want to manage your money or they want to take you on as an insurance client. They want to sell you an insurance plan or anything. Or an annuity. (laughs) Or an annuity, right? Whatever they're trying to sell you, they're going to talk to you as if they're an expert and use fancy terms. The more you know, the more you can sit on the other side of that conversation and nod your head and go, I I know exactly what that is. You can't have, and no one will be able to come up to you and talk to you like you're dumb. And for me, that has made it so worth it. You know, when somebody's talking to me about investments, I'm like, you're talking to me. I know everything. I know about investments. You're not going to talk to me like I'm dumb. And that is very, very empowering. Yeah. And, I, and that's what this is all about. Money is empowering. And when yes. you have control of your money and you're controlling it, and it isn't controlling you or somebody else isn't controlling you through money, yes. then you are master of your own universe. And each one of us, man, woman, young person, we all need to be master of our own universe because once you lose control of money, then that's either controlling you through debt or whatever problem you're dealing with. Or if somebody else, because you are making someone else empowered to be in control of your money. So I'm going to say it again. I say it probably in every podcast I ever do. Your partner isn't your plan. So don't look for somebody out there in the great wide world to come and you know help you out and control your money so you don't have to think about it and you can just go about your life. That doesn't work, okay? It just leads inevitably to some sort of terrible disaster down the road. So let me ask you one quick question. When we got all the states signed up for this, what's A, yes, we finally made some progress in this country. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> what's next? <laughs> yes. So I think first is just access, which the mission of the organization NGPF is mission 2030, that the goal is that by the year 2030, all 50 states, not just 23, 24 states, but all 50 will have this graduation requirement. Once that happens, we can check the box off for access. Now everyone has access, but the next box is quality. 
you know, right now we're just saying, hey, let's just get a class in front of the kids. Let's just get this information in front of them. They need it. But the next measure is now we have to go deeper. What exactly is the quality of the instruction happening in the schools? And that's going to require a lot of support. That's going to require personal finance specialists at the district level and at the school level. And at the state level, not just teachers getting certifications or licensures to teach this, but coaches coming in and really looking at the instruction, evaluating lessons and saying, okay, this is what best practices are happening across the country. How do we take that and replicate it in the other financial literacy classes happening across the country so that we know that it's not just financial education, but high quality financial education that they're getting. I love everything about this. I mean, honestly, what you are doing is God's work. You are helping (laughs) so many young people improve their lives by putting this in place. Like you're doing this on a macro level, but just the individual lives that would not be touched if you hadn't done it is immense. I mean, if you think about it in how it's going to it's going to trickle down and how it's going to multiply with a bunch of younger people. Now, finally, A, knowing their options. Maybe they are going to go to technical school or they're going to go do something other than go to college. And they're going to know about what to do about their budget. And they may have something rolling around in their head about, oh, yeah, I've heard about 401ks. I've heard about... uh, Or I opened a custodial Roth IRA. If they're working in high school, they can open a custodial Roth IRA with an adult. A lot of them can start investing now. They don't even have to... As long as you work, you can do it. So yes, yes. So I I think that Yanelli Espinal is like somebody that is like what you're doing is so much bigger than just teaching us about personal finance on a personal level, because I know you do that too, and that's super important. But this aspect of what you do is just so incredibly important. And I don't know anyone else out there doing it. I also didn't know that we had 23 states right now lined up to do this. I was still back in 2018 (laughs) saying, why can't we get this going? Who knew that you were out there? You know, you're like out there making it happen, girl. So I want you all to like go on this website um, for the NGPF org. Look at what they're doing. Get involved in your state. Okay. This is not something we can be passive about. I want you all to get involved because who are we helping? Whether you have kids or you don't. That's right. The people who are our next generation is going to make this country either be great or not be great. That's right. And if we don't know about money, then uh, forget it. All the other stuff is is irrelevant. 100%. If you're in the state of California, support the California Ballot Initiative, financialed4ca.com. If you're not in California, you can look on ngpf.org to see the map to see if your state requires it or not. If your state does not require it, the easiest step you can take is to draft up an email or pick up the the phone and call up your local senators or representatives that are on the House Education Committee or the Senate Education Committee. So look, just pull up Google, look, type in your zip code and find out who are your Senate Education Committee members or your House Education Committee members and email them, call them and tell them, hey, I noticed our state doesn't require financial literacy. We're falling behind. There's 23, 24 states, soon to be more, and we're not one of them. How do we get this done? I, I live in this zip code. I'm your constituency. I care about this. My community cares about this. Who can I talk to about getting this done? And your voice matters so much more than you think it does. Because when I talk to lawmakers, they'll tell me, well, you know, this is important. That's true. But our constituents haven't been demanding this. I don't see this at the board meetings for the school board. I'm not really hearing it from my constituents. They got to hear it from you in your zip code. It can't just be me taking meetings with these folks because I'm not living there. They care about the people they serve in their constituency, and that's you. So I would email, call, tweet at them, post to Facebook, whatever you got to do, get their attention and let them know that this issue matters to you. Yeah, and that's the beauty of living in a democracy, right? So 
while we still have one, we need to use our voices, right? And and this is a very important thing. So for all my California people, tell me again, it's um, financial financial ed ed for California, number four.com. That's right. Number four. I'm going on there after I'm done with this podcast because I put my money where my mouth is. And I'm also going to check out the website, uh, the NG. NGPF.org. Yeah. So NGPF stands for Next Generation Personal Finance. So for those of you who are like, what is a letter? NGPF. NG is next gen and then PF personal finance. So personal finance for the next generation. Okay. So that's the most important thing I really wanted to address today. You have so many other tips that we have to do a whole other podcast at some point. I got to come back. (laughs) About personal finance. But um, okay, Miss Be Helpful, where do we find you in your other realm where you're helping people? Real people about managing their money, paying down their debt, having their emergency funds, figuring out how what they want to do with their retirement plans. I know you are on YouTube, but tell us how we can find you. And again, remind people about your book. We'll also have a link for the book in the show notes, but let us know so that we can find more of you because you're just a, an amazing, really inspirational Thank you. woman. Thank you so much. Well, so, I mean, I started my career as a teacher and, and so books are everything to me. I filled my classroom up with bins, colorful bins full of books for my kids. I think reading is is really everything. I mean, I read every chance I get. If, if I got a minute to spare, I pull up an audio book or I read a book. And so I knew that I wanted to write a book when my following started asking me about it. And so my book is really a combination of stories and strategies around money that have worked for me. Um, and so you can get the book at mindyourmoneybook.com the guide is also there that pairs with the book and all my social information if you want to follow me on Facebook Instagram YouTube anywhere it's all that mindyourmoneybook.com well Yanelli thank you so much for a being you I mean I come away from this feeling inspired that there are still young women out there who are making a difference I mean you're making a difference you're not just sitting around talking the talk you're talking the talk you're walking the walk and you're getting states to change their minds about personal finance as a as a requirement. I I just love this. I love <laughs> what you're doing. I Thank hope you. everyone follows you, goes on this website, goes on the California website. Yeah. Yes. Let's make this happen. This young woman is making a big difference. And so I just say, congratulations. Thank Your you parents so should be super proud of you. They are. Uh, <laughs> especially, especially now being an author, they're like, what? Like my parents never go, never went to school. They didn't go beyond the third or fourth grade, so let alone middle school, high school, college even. So for me to, you know, have, have completed college, got a master's, now published a book and, and be able to actually create systemic change through legislation, they, they're beyond proud. They're just like, when are you going to get married and have a baby? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no, not that. yet. You've got too much more to do, girl. Come on That's now. Right. Take That's your right. time. You'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get there. But I want to say thank you so much for thank giving you. us your time, your expertise, your passion, your energy. I come away from this really wanting to make a difference in making sure this actually happens across the great United States. And I can't thank you enough for your time. And honestly, I would just want to celebrate Yanelli Espinal because she is freaking amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks everyone for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Get inspired, be passionate, go make a difference because if you don't, nobody else will. Thanks very much. 
Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.